0: This is the Witnesses of History podcast presented by Jeff Longley. Hello and welcome to Witnesses of History for the beginning of April. And we start with the report dated the 4th and the 5th of April. Nineteen thirty six. Mussolini had invaded Abyssinia, now called Ethiopia, on the third of October in thirty-five. The native troops were ill armed and barefoot, and the Italians using modern armaments and mustard gas inflicted heavy casualties. This account of the flight of the Ethiopian army after its unsuccessful attack on the Italians at Mike on the thirty first of March is by Colonel. Konolvalov, a white Russian military adviser, with the emperor's forces. At this same hour, something happened on the front which the Ethiopians had abandoned. The explosions of the enemy's shells, though less frequent, sounded very near. Everybody knew how critically placed we were. It was impossible to find a single man ready to obey an order or even in his proper place. Soldiers drifted about in every direction and in disorderly crowds. The mountain was full of them. The emperor returned to his observation point after a late lunch, but there was a heavy mist and one could distinguish little. Before nightfall, a new council... A little later, they began to examine the objects which filled the cave to see what could be taken away, much opening of trunks and cases. Near nightfall, the emperor began to distribute in person the things that he could not take with him. Cartridges, oddments of clothing, liquor, preserved food, supplies of all sorts. The cave filled up with soldiers who wished to profit from the occasion. When the emperor wished to leave the cave, he could force a passage only with the greatest difficulty – beatings, shouts, gesticulations, and at last the mob left the place with their booty. At 9.30 we left Aya and took the road for Korian. Behind us they exploded all the artillery and rifle ammunition, the tins of petrol and drums of oil, which destroyed, along with them all, the remained of the piles of striped shirts and black satin capes with which we hoped to draw the Azibo Gaila to our side. The field radio station was abandoned with the rest. The descent from our mountain was terrible, so dark was the night. Every minute the road was jammed. When the Ethiopian march, the main object of each man is to pass all the others. This mob of people trying to thread its way through donkeys, mules and hundreds of other Ethiopians created an incredible disorder – We took the whole night to cover the ten kilometres or so which separated us from Lake Ashangi. I'd lost sight of the Emperor and the sons of Raskasa, with whom I had travelled before, and was marching now with a group of soldiers. It was only at dawn that two of the Emperor's pages joined me. They too had been separated in the crowd. We hurried. At every moment the aeroplanes might appear. These last days they had continually bombarded the shelterless borders of Lake Ashangi and the two passes to north and south of it full of baggage trains and soldiers. After a moment's halt I decided to go on to Korem. My companions did not continue with me. It was seven o'clock in the morning when the first aeroplane was seen. Bombs rained upon our troops in retreat. Other aeroplanes appeared. When I had crossed the pass and come down into the valley, the bombardment was let loose in all ferocity. Fourteen planes took turns to hurl their bombs upon the unbroken flood of humanity which surged towards Korem. I had to travel rather to the left of the crowd. I shall never forget the picture that I saw. The wide valley, which during the season of rains is inundated in part, lay level under the blazing African sun. To its side, the blue surface of the lake was lightly ruffled by the breeze. Along the road, the weary people dragged themselves, scattering for a moment in panic or massing together in groups. Four, six, eight bombs burst, one after the other. They fell some distance from the road and hit nobody. The people quickened pace. Here's another aeroplane which seems to be choosing its victims as it flies just over their heads. One explosion, then another which raises a jet of earth clubs. Sand stones. People are hit this time. Everything round me disperses. I turn round and see someone dying on the ground, a form that slightly moves. Fear pushes the survivors upon their road without attending to the wretch who cannot follow them for he has lost his legs. At the same moment our allies, the Azibo Gala, fire on us from the hilltops where the villages lie. When they seize stragglers, they kill them and strip the bleeding bodies of rifles, cartridges and clothes. Before us, there is a corner of hell which none of us can avoid. On one side of the road is the lake, on the other are the mountains. The pass is narrow and the human flood finds it hard to press forward and through. Everybody knows that in the bush and behind the rocks hide the treacherous Azebo on the watch. A hail of bombs burst all over the pass, wounding animals and men. Poor little Ethiopian donkeys, how often have I seen them on the road, their jaws smashed to pieces, their eyes blown from their sockets, their stomachs opened by a bomb. We crossed the dangerous pass, blot after dark blot along our road. These were stains of blood dried quickly by the lively sun. They showed us the way. We hurried on over bodies, sprawled and tumbled. Once more I found myself in a wide open place where I tried to keep my distance from the crowd. Behind a turn in the road, a bomb has just burst. I see the Ethiopian in front of me, bending over an extended body. What has happened? he said. Bomb, please, medicine, answers the wounded man, turning his eyes in supplication to me. And I do not want to be left behind. See us, me and the Ethiopian following me, running on along the road. As I go... I see again a face now no more than a pulp of bleeding flesh over which a young boy hangs sobbing trying his best to help the wounded. Others are falling around us. We run on and on and at last we are near the caves of Kerem which will shelter us from the bullets of the Abzibu and the aeroplanes of the Italians. On a range of hills covered with bush there are tuckles and the characteristic small properties of the Ethiopians surrounded by palisades. Further off On a small mountain, there's a larger property, kept more tidily. It belongs to the local Shum. I run down the hill and on towards the slope where the caves are dug. At my feet, until lost to view, spreads the valley inhabited by the terrible Azibu Gala. It is a time I reached my refuge. Two planes are already flying over me. Eight years later, the 7th of April, 1943, Alan Moorhead reports on a Luftwaffe pilot in Tunisia. A Messerschmitt with silver wings was only fifteen or twenty feet above our heads as it roared on down the road to Beaufort's, gunfire into its belly. For half a minute the machine continued straight onwards. It rose slightly, executed a graceful half circle in the sky, and then slithered down to a belly landing among the wild flowers. We jumped back into the car and drove a couple of miles to the river where we judged the plane had fallen. From many directions, troops who had seen the incident were running through the shoulder-high wheat, which was dotted with red poppies and sweet mustard and tall white lilies. In a few minutes, we found the Messerschmitt. It had landed practically unharmed on the soft wheat, but the pilot had vanished. I clambered into the cockpit and felt with the joystick and the trigger. It was still warm from the pilot's hand, still warm from the grip with which he had fired his guns at us along the road a minute or two before. On the bank of the river an Arab peasant was gesticulating and shouting and everyone ran across to the direction in which he was pointing. They found the pilot hiding in a dung heap under a lip in the bank and he made no effort to resist. He lay there until the pursuers found him and then he got up slowly with his hands above his head and walked towards his machine with a pistol, pressed in his back. He was a strikingly good-looking boy, not more than twenty-three or four, with fair hair and clear blue eyes, and he wore flying boots and overalls, but no cap. The soldiers searched him and took from his pockets his revolver and his belt of bullets and a leather wallet. As they searched, the German fumbled for a cigarette and made motions for someone to light it for him. He did this mechanically and without attempting to speak, and the hand which held the cigarette was shaking badly. Someone lit the cigarette, and for some reason I couldn't understand, the man with the pistol motioned the pilot to a place in the wheat about 20 yards from the fallen plane. And quite accidentally, everyone stepped back from the pilot at the same time, and he was left alone, standing in the wild flowers. You could see very clearly what he was thinking. He was thinking... They're going to shoot me now. This is the end. The one with the pistol will fire at my body. He stiffened and the hand holding the cigarette was tensed and shivering. Little globes of sweat came out and a line on his forehead. He looked straight ahead. All this took only a moment and then in the same involuntary way the British troops moved towards him again and motioned him to march with them back toward the road. The pilot didn't comprehend for a moment. Then he relaxed and drew deeply on his cigarette and it was again quite clear that he was saying to himself in a spasm of half understood relief, it's all right, they're not going to shoot me. Then we all walked back to the road. We felt pleased that the matter had ended so well and that punishment had come so quickly to the enemy who had fired at us on the road. But this actual physical contact with the pilot, his shock and his fear, suddenly made one conscious that we were fighting human beings and not just machines and hilltops and guns. Nearly always the battle to us was a mechanical thing and the enemy a sort of abstract evil in the distance. But now having captured a human being from that dark continent, which was the enemy's line, one wanted to talk to the pilot and argue with him and tell him he was wrong. (music) We move on another year to the 5th of April 1944 and to another continent, the Japanese prison camp at Kuching in Borneo and Agnes Newton-Keith's report of George and his parents who survived their interment and were liberated in August 1945 but before that, George's birthday. On April the 5th, George was four years old. It was his second birthday in prison camp. Harry, his father, was in the guardhouse. George had no present from him. At midday, Lila and I got out the box of Red Cross food. We opened everything and divided each item into 34 sections. It required mathematical precision, but we did it. Every child then brought a bowl or plate to us and watched with shining eyes. We filled each plate with little mounds of salmon, sardine, butter, spam, ham, jelly, meat, prunes, chocolate, cheese, and we had made a milk pudding with milk and rice, which we added. Then we called for cups and distributed coffee with sugar, and all mothers were rewarded for being mothers, with cigarettes. Each child took his plate, said thank you politely, said happy birthday to George, and scurried home. Each face was pale with excitement. This was not fun or pleasure. This was tense, terrible, earnest participation in paradise. I had wondered beforehand if I was wrong in not saving the foodstuff for George to feed to him over a period of time. But when I saw those faces, I knew I was right. George's melting gratification in having something to give, his pride in being a benefactor made him swell all day long before my eyes, until by night time he was twice normal. How I loved him then. And we finish with two totally different stories from the Daily Telegraph, starting on April the 5th, 1895, as Oscar Wilde is in the criminal court. The Marquis of Queensbury, yesterday morning, the second day of the trial, again surrendered to the Central Criminal Court to take his trial upon the charge of having unlawfully and maliciously written and published a defamatory libel on Mr. Oscar Wilde in the form of a card directed to him and left at the Albemarle Club. Mr. Oscar Wilde was recalled for cross-examination by Mr. Carson. Do you know Walter Granger? Yes, he was a servant of a certain house in High Street, Oxford, and was about sixteen. They were the rooms of Lord Alfred Douglas, and I have stayed there several times. Were you on familiar terms with Granger? Did you have him dine with you? No. He waited at table. Did you ever kiss him? He was a peculiarly plain boy. He was, unfortunately, very ugly. I pitied him for it. Do you say that in support of your statement that you never kissed him? No, it's such a childish question to ask me. Do you suggest that he was too ugly? I did not say that. Why did you mention his ugliness? The question seemed to be merely an intentional insult on your part, such as I have been going through the whole of this morning. Why did you mention his ugliness? I'm obliged to ask you these questions. It is ridiculous to imagine that any such thing could possibly have occurred under any circumstances. Then why did you mention his ugliness? For that reason, if I was asked why did I not kiss a doorpost, I should say because I do not like to kiss doorposts. And then am I to be cross-examined because I do not like it? Why did you mention the boy's ugliness? You stung me by an insulting question was that a reason you should say the boy was ugly? At this point, the witness made several attempts to formulate an answer, but failed to complete any of them coherently or audibly. Mr. Carson added to his apparent confusion by repeatedly interjecting, why, why? Was that a reason why you should say the boy was ugly? The witness managed to collect himself with an effort, replying, pardon me, I say that you sting me and insult me and try to unnerve me in every way and at times one says things flippantly when one should speak more seriously. I admit it. After other questions, the cross-examination ended. This interrogation was really the turning point of the libel action. For the following day, prosecuting counsel asked on behalf of the plaintiff to withdraw from the prosecution. The next day, Oscar Wilde was himself arrested to answer serious charges preferred against him at the instant of the public prosecutor. And so finally, still with the Daily Telegraph, to the April 4th report of 1977 by Peter Scott writing as Hotspur. Red Rum could have at least two more chances to improve what must now be reckoned the finest individual grand national record in a race stretching back almost 140 years. Saturday's great win was his third and he has also been twice second. I cannot recall any grand national winner showing less signs of fatigue after the race and the inevitable mobbing from his ecstatic admirers. It is said with justification that luck generally plays a bigger part in this race than any other, but Red Rum makes his own good luck. He nimbly avoids trouble, measures each of those now familiar fences with precision and runs on with ever-increasing power. Red Run was left in front after Andy Pandy had fallen at Beecher's on the 2nd Circuit. From that point, the chief danger seemed to be interference by riderless horses. Red Rum's proven staying power against Churchtown Boy's suspect stamina could, barring bad luck, end in only one result. Almost inevitably, the tiring Churchtown Boy began to make mistakes as Red Rum galloped on without remorse. A fine jump by Red Rum at the last ended all arguments. He drew steadily further down away to win by a 25-length margin that has not been surpassed since Mr. Watt's 30-length victory In 1958, until Saturday, Red Rum was among eight horses who had won the Grand National twice. His third triumph is without precedent, as is his feat of finishing first or second five years running. The cheaply bought, unfashionably bred two year old, with who dead heated for a Liverpool selling plate on april seventh, nineteen sixty seven, has now become the first horse to win more than a hundred thousand pounds first prize money under national hunt rules. His twenty four jumping successes have been worth one hundred and fourteen thousand three hundred and seventy pounds. Red Rum has now safely negotiated one hundred and fifty grand national fences. Don McCain who became his trainer after Mr Noel Le Maire brought the horse for 6,000 guineas in August 1972, typically gives all credit to red rum, but this does less than justice to his own school. Tommy Stack, who often rode red rum in those undistinguished days before he joined McCain's Southworth stable, also generously transferred his Saturday laurels to the horse. Christopher Wright adds it was one of those days when the old cliché came true. Strong men actually did weep. Such was the emotional impact of Red Rum's historic achievement. Even before the grand national record was in sight, the commentator's very mention of that magic name Red Rum brought waves of cheers from the 51,000 crowd and when he went clear on the run-in, pandemonium broke loose. The winner's enclosure after the National is always mayhem, but on Saturday the place erupted with men and women laughing and shouting with tears in their eyes, proclaiming one of the greatest racing performances of all time. Tommy Stack, the jockey, said it's impossible to do justice to Red Rum. He's so intelligent. He manages to find a safe route. He jumps like a cat and can adjust instantly to any situation. He loves the Aintree atmosphere and was looking round about him all the time. In fact, he was enjoying it so much he hardly seemed to realise he was galloping. After the last, when I knew we were going to win, I simply concentrated on not falling off. When people spilled onto the course near the winning post, it was like riding into a funnel. But it didn't worry Red Rum. You've been listening to the Witnesses of History podcast with Jeff Lumley. The music was by Eric Matias. www .soundimage.org